could, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. That will be where our text will be found this morning. And if you have a copy of the Confession, we are going to be beginning chapter 26. Uh, There are extra copies of the Confession out in the entryway if you'd like one of those. There are a number of those out there. Uh, This morning, by way of beginning this chapter, this will be, uh, just at the outset, this will very much be an introduction to this chapter. Uh, We will not be dealing primarily with the paragraphs within this chapter, but we're going to be dealing with an overview of the purpose and the intent uh, of the chapter, uh, why it is of utmost importance in our confession. Uh, Some will ask the question, weren't we just on chapter 18? Why are we jumping all the way to chapter 26? Did we not want to cover that which is in the middle? We're going to come back to those things. But we are going to deal uh, for a number of of weeks. Uh, This is going to take probably more than weeks. This is probably going to take months to get through this chapter. And I think it is of the utmost importance. And uh, even some of the conversations that I've had today have already reminded me of just how important and urgent the need is to understand the biblical church. If you would, look with me at Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to read a substantial part of this today uh, because I think this is one of the pivotal uh, passages that the Apostle Paul wrote regarding uh, the church. And I want you to notice how from the beginning of this chapter until the very end, you can see the progression here of moving from him identifying himself, uh, what his role, what his purpose is, how he takes the church at Ephesus from the mystery that was once before the Old Testament saints, was before in the mouths of the prophets, and how he moves them along to what the ultimate purpose and goal of the church is. Beginning there in verse 1, Paul writes these words, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it, now, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel." Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, 
may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. As part of our introduction this morning, we want to deal with that thought, the glory of the church. We cannot underestimate or can we overstate the importance and the urgent need it is for contemporary Christianity to understand and have a biblical working knowledge of the church. It is something today that seemingly has gone completely the other direction. We are seeing instead of a drawing nearer to the Bible and the structure of what the church should be, we are seeing at an alarming rate, we are seeing a complete opposite move where the church is becoming more contemporary in its thought to where it now begins to try to find new ways and new ideas to propagate what they proclaim is the gospel. But yet we have always had the pattern. We've always had what the church was supposed to be, how it's supposed to be structured. We have it all laid out for us in the word. If a, if a group of people plants a church anywhere in the world, uh, it is already given to them how that church should be planted, what that church should look like, how it should function. It's all laid out in the scriptures. So to have an understanding of the church, we have to have a biblical understanding of what the church is about. Now, we are not doing this just to simply try to insult that the church which is wrong, but rather to reinforce and to help us be reminded of the value of the church. Uh, by my own uh, journey throughout my own life, uh, the value of the church has not always been practically known by me. There have been times when I could appreciate the church. I could appreciate what it was standing for. I could appreciate things the church was doing. But what I never fully comprehended was the true value of the church and the value that the Apostle Paul placed in his letters and the value that Jesus Christ himself placed upon the church. When he made that statement, which sometimes we say a famous statement, but it's more than famous, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was not talking about some organization that was like every other organization. He was talking about that which is the very, uh, the very uh, body that he would die for. The value of the church is found in the value of that Jesus Christ has. We understand today we are sinners saved by grace. And we are not adding value to God in any way, shape, or form. But yet we are privileged to be called part of the body of Christ. So it is, has been a journey for me to fully understand what is the purpose of the church? What is the importance? Now we could give a lot of reasons today why the church is so undervalued. But there would be no value or no argument we could make to where the church should be treated as simply just another organization or something that is of less value. But rather, what we should understand here is that Jesus Christ himself puts this 
emphasis on the church. Jerry, would you grab the door for me, please? That this emphasis that is placed upon the church, Jesus himself in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, he promises to build his church in triumph over death and hell. If you'll go with me to that chapter again, Matthew 16, and let's look at this together, beginning there in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. And you'll notice again that before Jesus even gets to the the declaration of building the church, he begins to ask the most important question that could ever be asked of an individual. In verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, and I want you to notice he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now notice what he does here. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Now Jesus was not asking his disciples what others were saying about him. He knew what they were saying. But specifically he wanted to know, who do you, my disciples, say that I am? What do you think about me? How do you look at who I have declared myself to be. And of course, the first one to respond is Simon Peter. Again, let's make sure we don't give Simon Peter too hard of a time. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now before we read on further, did Peter have the right answer? He had the right answer. He declared the proper answer. And because he gives the proper answer, notice Christ answers him and says unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. He begins to tell him that your understanding of this did not come by some arrival in your own logic and your own understanding. This gift of understanding has been sent by the Father himself to reveal these truths to you. And I say unto you that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was not saying, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon you. Which is a complete, that's the the complete wrong idea that the Roman Catholic Church takes, that the church was built upon Peter. He's not saying that at all. He goes on and he says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. That's a whole other interesting conversation we could have, but we won't do that today. Why did he tell them to not tell anybody else? So when we see the value that Christ puts upon the church, he promises to build his church in triumph Not over just death, but also hell. Ephesians 5, 25 and verse 25, verses 25 to 27 tells us that Jesus died for the church. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus, when he gives his final and great commission, directs his disciples to labor to see churches formed until the end of this age. It is a great commission given that the church was to continue on until the end of the age. Now, seemingly, we do understand that it is not due to a lack of churches or churches to find. Look for churches anywhere near us, and there are hundreds of them. 
There are churches on every corner. You do not have to look hard to find a church. There are churches everywhere. But are all the churches that we see, are those all true churches? And are they all based upon the biblical mandate for what a church should be? And I would say, no, they're not all functioning that way. So can a gathering and assembly of believers that does not function according to the Word of God, can it call itself a church? It can put a church on the sign. It can say it's a church. But does it mean it truly values and understands the importance of that, the importance of that church? Now, as we read in Ephesians 3, and we'll make reference back to that again, the church at some points in history was very much a mystery. It was very much something that had not been fully revealed. And Paul in Ephesians 3, the first seven verses, is declaring to the church at Ephesus that there has been a time when these things were a bit of a mystery, but now they have been revealed by divine revelation. When Paul was writing those letters to the churches, he was not writing those churches in his own knowledge. He was writing those under the inspiration of God himself. God was inspiring his writings and those writings were declaring these are the mysteries. These are the things that we, are, you are, we, have, we have up to a point only had a glimpse of what they are. In verses 8 through 12 of Ephesians 3, Paul declares that the church lies at the very center of God's saving purpose among men. It is the church that is the organization, if you will, that will declare the saving purposes of God. That is what we are supposed to be about. Now, the church is going to be involved in a lot of other things, but primarily it is in the church that the saving purposes of God are going to be carried out. This is not a light thing to consider. So if the churches are part of the saving purposes of God being carried out, what do we, what do we learn at the end of that chapter is Paul then declares that there is coming a day when Jesus himself will return again and he will reveal his glory fully and completely in his glorified church. One day we will truly see the full glory of God right before us. We have a glimpse of God's glory today. We have a, a glimpse of who God is. But we have not seen the entirety of his glory yet, but there is coming a day when that will happen. I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul made mention of this coming day in various epistles that he wrote. But in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, and Paul declaring to the church of Thessalonica, he says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints... And to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God could count, would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ." There is this glory that Paul continually spoke about to the church at Rome in Romans chapter number 8 in verse 29. Again, Paul makes mention of this beauty of the glory of Christ. Romans 8 verse 29. We adore this text. 
This, we adore all of God's word, but this, this is the beauty. For whom, or in verse, let's start in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. We see this picture, again, of the glory not only being put on display in his saints and in those who would believe, but God himself predestinated those that would bring glory to him. And then let's go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. Again, all just kind of introducing us to this principle of the value of the church or the glory. Revelation 1, verses 1 through 4. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. One of the sad things that has happened with the study of the book of Revelation is we have become so consumed with trying to be right as to the end times and eschatology, we miss the beauty of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the very first words of the book of Revelation. I have watched churches just miss the point of the book of Revelation because we get sidetracked and argue over how it's all going to end. The reality is, is Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. The subject matter of the book is the very first words of that epistle. So this church that was a mystery, this thinking that Paul wrote about in Ephesians, now being revealed by divine revelation. People argue over things like, when did the church begin? When did the church start? Who did it start with? Was it in the Old Testament? Did it start in the New Testament? Did it start at, the, at Pentecost? Did it start with Jesus and the disciples? This morning, we're not answering that question. This morning, we're simply looking at the pre- presentation that the Bible itself in the Old Testament presents to us a picture or a figure or a type of the church. No matter where you look at in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, you see the church either in type or picture or literally you see it. We are to understand that the church was declared to be the people of God. Ephesians chapter 3, again, if you'll go back there with me, notice what Paul wrote in verses 5 through 6. We'll review this again. The emphasis is on the people of God. The emphasis is that the church is, will be, has always been the people of God. It leads us to the question that's continually asked. Is the church to be for the world or is the church to be for the people of God? You see, churches have begun and have been getting this wrong for a number of times by saying, we've got to make the church more appealing to the world. 
when the church was really supposed to be about the people of God. It's not a popular, it's not a popular position. Because we say if we don't make the church appealing to the world, we'll never get people in here. We're never called to make the church appealing, nor are we called to make the gospel appealing. We're called to declare what the Bible declares it to be. The gospel is the gospel to every nation, every people, no matter what their background is. It's not an amended gospel depending upon who you're speaking with. You don't have to have a particular type of church based upon the particular type of people in that particular region. You still have the Bible mandate for what the church ought to look like. It is the very biblical pattern in which the Bible discusses. There are metaphors throughout the scripture that describe what the church looks like, how it should be structured. And you'll notice again when Paul wrote in Ephesians 3 verses 5 and 6, he says, "...which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." Now here's how we know that the church is the people of God, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel." Paul, a Jew himself, declaring that the Gentiles would also be a part of this body. The body of whom? The people of God. We have biblical metaphors in the scriptures regarding describing the church that are drawn from every aspect of life. There were illustrations given about the church that we get from agriculture. There are pictures of the church we get from military examples. There are pictures of the church that we get from education. There are pictures of the family used to illustrate what the church is supposed to be. But I don't know if you've ever thought about this. The absolute, I think the most profound and most staggeringly powerful biblical metaphor is when the church is described as the body of Christ. The body of Christ. That is a beautiful picture being laid out. The body means it is those who are in Christ, those who, are, who make up that body, which means that the church can only be those who are in Christ. Now some would say that's very prejudiced to say that an unbeliever is not part of the body of Christ. I'm not saying that. The Bible declares that to be so. You cannot be part of the body of Christ if you are not in the body and you are not in Christ Jesus by faith. The movement to the church is to make the gospel more palatable and inclusive because we're afraid of saying and declaring what the Bible actually says. Now, who does the command go out to to repent and believe? We've, we've said this the last month. Every Sunday I've said this. To every single person, no matter what their background is, no matter what they've done, repent and believe the gospel. We are not to declare who can or who's worthy to receive it because none of us were worthy to receive it. None of us are worthy to be called His children. And yet, by His grace, we are. So there are these very important things that we're going to consider. Now, from a standpoint of the confession itself, we adopted the confession of faith for a, a many, many different reasons. And I've said this, and I continue to remind us every time we study this, that this does not supplant the Bible. This is not an inspired document. The confession of faith is not inspired. It does not override Scripture. Wherever there is disagreement, 
we always take what the scripture says. There are times and things we've mentioned that there are things that we're going to have to deal with that that's not what the Bible says. And, but we're using this as a guide so that someone says, what specifically does your church believe? We, we can show them this and we can say this is what we believe. It covers nearly every aspect of doctrine, every aspect of the Christian life. But this confession does something that some of the other confessions do not do that it thoroughly covers the church in a greater way in chapter 26 than even the most recognized confession in the world is, which is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is more detailed on the church than the Westminster is. Now, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for it because the Westminster Confession of Faith is primarily a Presbyterian confession of faith. This is a Baptist confession of faith. There is a difference between Presbyterians and Baptists There are various things, but the Baptists spend the most time dealing with what the church is to look like. Chapter 26 in the Baptist Confession of Faith is the longest chapter in the entire confession. There's more said about the church than anything else. There are 15 paragraphs in chapter 26 alone on not only what the church is, but how the church is to function. It deals with the universal church and the local church. It deals with it at every level, the invisible church and the visible church, even giving down to the very structure of what the church should look like. So we understand that even in the confession, in this chapter, that the doctrinal importance of the church is reflected in our confession. Chapter 26, the largest chapter of the confession, 15 paragraphs. The next largest chapter in our confession is chapter 1, which if you remember is what? The Holy Scriptures. So the church is the longest chapter. The Holy Scriptures, chapter 1, is the second longest or largest. And the third is chapter 8, which is Christ the Mediator. Both chapter 8, both chapter 1, 10 paragraphs. Chapter 26, again, divided into two sections. That's how we're going to tackle this over the coming months. The first section includes paragraphs 1 through 4, which deals specifically with the universal church. Now, if we don't get that in our minds, we're going to get confused from paragraph one. Okay, so when you, when, you look at the, when you look at the confession this morning and you see paragraphs one through four, those particular paragraphs are dealing with the universal church. The second word of paragraph one always alarms people because it says the Catholic. Okay, it alarms us. We're... That word didn't always mean what it means today. Okay, so we'll talk about, we'll deal with that. So it breaks it up, paragraphs 1 through 4 deals with the universal church. The second section, which runs from paragraphs 5 through 15, concerns the local church. So there is the doctrinal importance of the church. Secondly, we need to understand that the attention that's given to the doctrine of the church by our confession is not only due to the scriptural importance of the church, but also due to the historical importance of the church. Chapter 26, we're also going to have to take in a historical setting. We're going to have to understand what was going on in the church when the confession was written. What fed into it. History does matter. There is coming a day when you and I, and the, the, what we're living through now, our generation, we are going to be quote-unquote history. People are going to read about what did the church do 
in the 2000s? What, how did, what was the church, what was the main things that were going on in society that was driving the church and made the church what it is today? One of those things will be the emphasis on this modern Christianity. It will be make the church fit into society, make it palatable for society, make it more accepting and welcoming which will be indicated, and I think history will say, it'll be the generation that began running the farthest away from the Scriptures. I truly believe that. I believe we're living in a generation that is looking at the Scriptures as saying, that is archaic, that is old. Come around to our modern, educated, intellectual thinking, and you'll have all the answers to what you need. Yet historically, when the Confession was written, it was not a brand new document. It was taken from documents that already existed, but it was still an indication of what was going on in the times. Primarily, when the Baptist Confession of Faith came and was put together by those who put the, wrote it and, took and, and pulled from other confessions of faith, it was a clear attempt to distinguish the church from the false Roman Catholic Church. You cannot change history on this. People have said, we just can't talk in terms like that. We cannot use that. We all have to get along. I'm just telling you, historically, this confession was intentionally written in a way that would distinguish us from the church of Rome. And there still must be a distinguishment between what church, the true church is and the church of Rome. That's why when you read through the confession, you find that the confession writers truly believed and indicated in chapters that the Antichrist declared without any hesitation, they said the Antichrist is the Pope. And they said it boldly. And they didn't waver on it. That's what they declared. Now again, we're going to encounter statements that are made in the Roman Catholic Church that the confession, even with regard to the church, completely refutes. It puts it aside. But it wasn't just given to distinguish from the Catholics, but it also was given to align us with churches that had a great desire to proclaim the true gospel and to worship Christ in a proper way with obedience as the key. In other words, this document was given to us to stir us to obedience. Not stir us to pride, not stir us to intellectual elitism, not to bring us to a place where we say we're better than someone else, but rather to help us function and to help us see the importance of how the true gospel and true worship must be protected. Now, among, again, Again, among biblically strong, biblically accurate churches, there are differences that are honest biblical convictions among the church. There are people with different convictions. We have to be able to acknowledge that. We have to be able to understand that those convictions are if those convictions arise out of a conviction of what the Scripture says, then those convictions must be held to. So our confession, without apology, 
and again, I say this without apology, expresses a Baptist conviction. We're a Baptist church. Someone asked me not too long ago, do you ever think you'll take Baptist out of your church name? I said, no. We're Baptist, Baptist by conviction. Now, does that mean I believe that Baptists are the only people who will be in heaven? Absolutely not. But our church is Baptist. More specifically, Reformed Baptist, which means we are basing our convictions and our standards and what we believe based upon those two truths. Now, there are distinct differences that will, will be in contrast with Presbyterians, and with those who are non-reformed. If you want to see a quick cat fight, watch a non-reformed and a reformed try to have a biblical conversation. Sadly, it ends in chaos, which shouldn't be the case, but it does. There just seems to be, oh, you're one of those reformed people. And suddenly now there's a label that comes with that. And if we're not careful, we say, you're a non-reformed person, and there's a label that comes with that. But there are distinctions that are being drawn here. Our confession, the Baptist Confession of Faith, there were two. There was the 1644, and then there's the 1689. The 1689 made some revisions on the 1644. So if the 1644 was a perfect, and it was the inspired Word of God, we wouldn't have needed a new one, and it wouldn't have been amended. Okay, now there are brothers and sisters in the Reformed tradition who say, we don't hold it to 1689, we hold it to 1644. Don't skewer them over that. Okay, there are some differences there. But understand that our confession does rely extensively upon a Presbyterian confession. This is where it gets interesting. The Baptist Confession of Faith cannot say we had nothing to do with the Presbyterians because it draws ex very heavily from the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's a Presbyterian confession. But chapter 26 substantially differs from Presbyterian ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. There is a main and major, there are some major differences. One of those differences is the very is just the sheer amount of what we confess in our confession. So the Baptist confession takes a little bit more to explain the church whereas the Westminster has 6 paragraphs in chapter 26. Ours is 15. One reason, the reason that the length of the chapter in our confession is based upon and was produced by a document that was produced by a group called the Independent Congregationalists. And that actually happened in 1658. It's also known, as some of you may know this, it's known as the Savoy Declaration. Now again, don't get bogged down in these details. I'm giving you this because I think it's just important history to understand some of these things. So this Savoy Declaration very much like the Confession of Faith, substantially identified with the Westminster Confession of Faith, but revised the Westminster six paragraphs on the church. In other words, the Savoy Declaration took that chapter on the church and revised it and says, we've got to make a change to this because we are in substantial disagreement with how this is laid out. Along with that, 
this independent group, the Congregationalists, also published a church government statement that was with regard to the life and the ministry of the local church. The 1689 Confession relies heavily upon the Savoy Declaration revision of the Westminster. And it's most recognized in the first four paragraphs of chapter 26. So the confession that we use is distinctive in that the Baptist authors incorporated the Savoy's church government statements for the local church. They pulled that into the document itself. Okay? So you are dealing with documents that have been pulled from history. And again, I'm just giving you a snapshot of part of this. If you are a, a, especially a church history person, there are volumes of how the confessions came about, the importance of the confessions, why you should be a confessional church. There are so many things there. So I would encourage you to do that. But our church governing or our ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, now again, just hear me out, is more congregational than Presbyterian in the ecclesiology of the church. Okay? Doesn't mean that there's not similarities, but when it comes to the church itself, it's more congregational. Both the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians, okay, now here's where, again, we're pulling from a document, they both believed and stood upon paedobaptism or baby baptizing, infant baptism. So even the Savoy that pulled that, the Congregationalists believed in infant baptism. Well, the Baptists, we don't believe in that. Okay, now that is a substantial, that's a substantial disagreement. Okay, that's, that is different. So the issues that stemmed from our convictions, okay, what Baptist convictions are, are most evident in chapter 26. But they also elaborate more on those as well in chapters 28 and 29. So again, that just gives us an idea of what the church from a historical or what the confession historically was about. And then finally, let's just finish with this. Along with the biblical and historical importance of the church, we cannot overemphasize the practical importance of the church. There's a practical purpose for the church. We are not just supposed to be only about doctrine without practicality. We're not just supposed to stand only on doctrine and have no practicality about it. The Bible in 1 Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Our confession not only expresses the doctrine of the church, but it calls us to this active engagement to be the pillar and ground of the truth. We're to be actively engaged in making sure this is where truth is. I've said this before, you realize the world does not really want the truth. This might be one of the first generations in history, maybe, maybe, maybe that's too, painting that too broadly, who really is not interested in truth anymore. They're only interested in their own version of truth. Whatever fits the narrative is what I'm interested in. If that makes my life easier, if that makes my life more palatable, if that makes my church life easier, I want that truth over there. But I especially want the truth that has no accountability, requires nothing of me, requires no obedience. I just simply get to coast along for the ride. But do you realize throughout Bible and throughout the scriptures itself, 
There is no such thing as true disciples of Christ who are not actively engaged in the work of God. Church is not something you come and just take up a place. We're to be actively engaged. In John 13, I think, is given one of the greatest pictures. John 13, verse 34 through 36. You see this repeatedly, but in these verses, Jesus' own words to His disciples, He says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And He says specifically, context is so important, by this, by this, the love you have for one another, shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have love one to another. There's an important emphasis on the word if. If ye love one another. Peter, in verse 36, said unto him, Lord, whether goest thou, Jesus answered him, whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I... Can I, cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. I always found it interesting, and maybe this is for another time. Peter didn't elaborate on Jesus' statement about love for one another. He just announced that, Lord, wherever you're going, I'm going to die for you. And Peter says, or Lord says, No, you won't. There was something he, of course, knew about Peter. He knew Peter at that time. But notice the emphasis that the Lord put on love for one another. The Bible nowhere envisions a true disciple who is not vitally part of a local church. As we'll study, there are people that say, I don't have to be part of the local church because I'm part of the universal church. The Bible doesn't make an exclusive saying you're one or the other. If you're part of the local church, you're part of the universal church. They are two different concepts here. Now, some of us grew up in environments, and I grew up in this environment, where I was taught there was no such thing as universal church. It was just local church. That's my background. That's that's all I knew. I was told to despise the universal church because I don't understand what that means. But this idea that says I can be joined to the universal church and never have anything to do with a local church, those Scots really don't go together. But there is the promise and there is the reality of the universal church. The worship of God, the spiritual edification, the nurture that the people of God that we receive and give to others, and the witness of the gospel to a dying world are dependent upon biblically ordered churches. That's what we're supposed to be about. Paul and John's letters mostly were written to the church. Read the epistles to the church at Corinth. Thessalonians. We see that the church is of utmost importance. So again, the morning is just an introduction to these thoughts. Okay, we're going to get much deeper into this. So next week, if you kind of want to start reading... Um, and kind of meditating upon the verses that are mentioned with paragraph one. Let's just read this and we'll, we'll close our time this morning with this. Paragraph one of chapter 26 says, The Catholic or universal church, which with respect to the in, internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, 
may be called invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So we'll deal with paragraph one next week. Let's conclude our study this morning by singing the hymn on page 54. Page